strong donkey that can holler has to travel with portable speakers playing boss jazz. Wish I had a house. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie man. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Bluebird Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV. Hey cats and kittens. This is extremely ad hoc and I apologize for not posting about this and not um, scheduling it at all and just going live. There has been a whole bunch of drama related to the Hill that I can't really get into at this stage, you know, Katie related. Suffice it to say, I will not be going on tomorrow morning and we'll see what happens with all of that. But I have been dealing with all that, completely lost track of time. So I am not on a microphone. I do not have my device hooked into my roadcaster with the sound effects and the theme song or anything. We're just gonna um, do this old school tonight. And it's also already so late that I'm not gonna stay on for too, too long. But of course I did want to give everyone a chance to talk about today's episode. So let's get right into it. Uh, Grace, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, um, well, first of all, I like when it's impromptu because apparently that's the only way that I get to be first. <laughs> Thanks ADHD. Um, but, but, um, anyway, you got me deep diving, um, from this episode today. And I guess I'm, this is a big question, but how do we stop fascism? (laughs) Um, or, you know, I mean, obviously we're seeing it, um, everywhere. And I know I've also heard you kind of go back and forth about like using the term fascism, but then it seems like we need a name for it. I don't know. (laughs) That's, I mean, it's a really good question in some ways. Kind of I know like, it's a huge question. Like, because uh, sometimes I'm like, the people who are saying, oh, she's not a fascist because everyone's a fascist, it's like a little bit too cute because it does elide real differences between different kinds of folks potentially and how at least how brazen they are willing to be about undermining certain kinds of norms, contributing certain norms. However, the other question that I think is a really good one to ask is, are we really just concerned about the visibility of norm breaking? Are we concerned about a substantive project? And in some ways, are the people who aren't obviously seen as fascist, like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and whatnot, actually more dangerous because of what they're allowed to get away with because they don't use insane language like Donald Trump and the like. And, you know, I think that's a, there's a very strong argument for that, that it's the ones that seem most reasonable or the most dangerous. And that's kind of why Maloney is even more interesting because despite kind of doing this like uh, playing footsie with fascism in her youth, she does seem to have recognized that she can get a lot out of seeming like imminently reasonable and towing the line on Ukraine and distancing herself from past Russia support and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like, you know, I, I mean, part of me thinks that the way to stop it is by calling out the, you know, the, the Joe Bidens or like the our side of the world, you know, um, <laughs> because, because, all of these people, they're the only ones who are speaking to the, um, you know, to the real economic problems that people are facing, um, strangely enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you see Bernie by any chance on Seth Meyers? No. Tonight, I think it, I, it was within the past week. Time means nothing to me, but I, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's definitely within the past week. And, you know, he, but he kept, he was using the language of families. That's why I bring it up, you know, just talking about working families. Um, and I do think that there is something to be said for, you know, the, because it's, it seems like what all these right-wing people are doing is saying, you know, they're, they're calling out the liberals for saying things about all of these identity groups and then doing, you know, um, and then, you know, call it like everyone, that's always the response is, well, you're racist, you're homophobic, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that those people aren't, but the people who it's coming from are also, you know, Mm -hmm. also perpetuating the same things. So I sort of wonder if maybe like we have to keep it all inside the house, but she's, I mean, she's, she is a girl boss. I'll give her that. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> Everyone's saying like, oh, a girl boss is a fashion. So these aren't white people or there. And I and I get that. But obviously the people who are framing her as a girl boss don't mean it in a fascisty way. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I look, and I said this, I, I, I heard myself when I was back during edit, like after it was edited. And uh, I heard myself say nothing that she says in this speech is like bad on its face. And um Paolo like raised his eyebrows at that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, like I get, I, there's the, the dog whistling is such that it's difficult to say like it wasn't actually a problem, but that's like the whole point of a dog whistle, right? That it's not explicit. But and, rhetorically, like yeah. you're such an expert in, you know, that's one of the things I really, pre- or I learned from you when I listen to your show, but like rhetorically, how do you respond to a dog whistle? Like when you're, yeah, I don't know. I, I think you have to, and people obviously feel very differently about this than I do. And you saw the reaction to when I said this about some of the Tucker Carlson stuff and then Marjorie Taylor Greens. But I think you have to own the space. You you have to dominate. You have to take what is correct, but responsive to something that's very real that people are feeling and own that space. Because sitting around playing these games about, oh, well, that person's in bad faith and that person doesn't really mean it. Like no one else is occupying a void of sounding like they actually care about the thing. And so if you're all you're doing is point, you know, if someone has a problem, if person A has a problem, person B has a solution, and person C is just poking holes in person B's solution, no one's inspired to follow person C. You've got right. to just say what person B is saying, but better and like not in a bigoted way and not throwing communities under the bus. Just if, if you think that people need support for families, don't argue that Maloney doesn't really want to support families. Just say here's my plan to support families. And I hope that Maloney will sign on to it and endorse it or offer something better. But what we need is more than empty rhetoric. You know, parents need stay at home leave or healthcare or like whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like just getting to, yeah, presenting the actual options, but the truth is the Democrats, you know, don't really have, I mean, as a party, they don't have that at this point. So it seems very hard to defeat. Although, Recently, I have started to be like, why have I been, you know, resisting the Antifa label that has been placed upon me? You know, like, why have I been backed into a corner where I am not (laughs) where you're almost I'm almost saying like, no, I'm not against fascism, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that to a certain degree, we all need to um, be more vocal about that. But the definition itself is seeming to be what's lacking. And I think that when you, you know, and I think when basically I view this time as a time where people, there are a ton of people who are like not ready, the change is happening and the people are not ready for it. And this is the backlash, you know? Um, 
but yeah. also we're not take we're not taking those people along with us um, by back of a corner and saying you know and and saying like there you know there's no way that you can come to our side. I feel like we don't we need to open a door for an exit strategy for these people because they're just yes. going further and further. Yes, and people people hear that and they're like, oh, this is the Red Brown Alliance or just welcoming fascism, but like new people are not being invented. Like, you know, today's fascists were yesterday's Republicans that you had no problem with, or they were yesterday's Obama's voters who you also had no problem with. These people aren't like spring fully grown from the head of Maloney like Athena, okay? Like that's not how this is working. So these are like human beings who have existed on the planet and you want them to think differently and vote in ways that are productive and not fascisty. So you have to, you've gotta, you've gotta offer them something and the, unfortunately, the neoliberal approach, the, the Democratic Party approach has been the only thing that that can draw people back. You know, Obama to Trump, but it's the only thing that could actually attract people is is the racism. The cruelty is the point. They, they really are there. The racism is the main event. And like, obviously, for some people, that's the case. I don't think people who voted for Obama feel that's the case. That's a little bit of a stretch. You can definitely be racist and vote for Obama, but I don't think that can be your sole animating purpose in life and vote for Obama. Um, so you, you're, you're going to have to stop using that as an excuse not to, you know, put put give people options and, att and attract them back to where they need to be. Yeah, I mean, and I try when I'm in that position, I just try to say, well, like, it's not like I, it's not like I don't think, you know, it's not like I don't that I'm not racist. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'll right. say. That's what right. I'll say as a response to people like I'm just learning things over time. And, you know, I'm working on being um yeah, being better, but you know, it's a process. Um, and, but I've just watched, I, I had a conversation that I saw some like extended family that I haven't seen in a while this past weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I've watched their shift rightward again from your like, you know, classic, you know, old, you know, conservative Republicans want lower taxes people to where, where we are now. Um, and I just, I really feel like I was successful in some ways in finding common ground, but then being like, and also all of these people are working together to work against us. Like the people of our country are suffering. Everything you're talking to me about is, you know, is true. You know, when they're like, the economy is in shambles and all, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like, yeah, you're mm -hmm. right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so I do, but I, but I, I explicitly said, which I felt, I don't know, like, I was like, I don't want this to become a violent situation like it's really at the point that that's of deep concern and I do feel like we have to start to come up with how we're going to respond to that you know I mean as it becomes as it happens more frequently you know do we confront these people head on um you know in the in the streets or I yeah I think that that's the net, the bigger question that I don't think it's too early to be asking unfortunately yeah well look I I, I, the reason I'm skeptical about street level milit militancy is not because I don't think it is appropriate and it's going to become necessary in some instances, but because courting it when the left isn't as unprepared as it is compared to the right seems a little like a fool's errand and like a recipe in getting people hurt. But if people are serious about thinking that it needs, to, it's going in that direction. Yeah, I do think that the left maybe needs to reconsider some of the stances that it takes on the Second Amendment and certain kind of regulations. Because I mean, if, if it's if that's where we are, that's where we are, and we should speak only about it. <laughs> you know, I don't know though because you know all of my friends. I mean, really, among 
my friends were so split um, in terms of, um, you know, like the gun question at this point, because, you know, after you're threatened by people, you know, physically, <laughs> um, you know, that situation changes and you know that they know where you live and you know that they're following you home, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I think like I personally don't think that that's going to be a winning strategy on just on a strategy standpoint, because then both sides will be able to say, you know, oh, they're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. Um, I, I personally feel like mass nonviolent movements, you know, but but then I but then these are the same people that I stand alongside in another capacity who feel very differently than me. So I think yeah, we got to like, start I, that I, I out too. I'm advocating for that. My, my point was the opposite. Yeah. That like, I understand why people feel that way. The reason oh, I don't, don't advocate for that is because I don't want the left just prepared. So if people want to do that, then they need to get prepared before they start walking around. You know, that my issue mostly with like the tie 11 conversation, it's like, I, are you going to punch all the Nazis for me? Like how many, it's just it, at a certain point, it seems a little performative if there's not a plan. I'm not against it, but I just need to hear a little bit more than like, it was funny in that one video when that one Nazi got punched. Like I agree, but now what? Because that guy has a lot more people with guns who are going to defend him than the guy that actually punched him. That's all. Right. So I'm not, it's not, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying what's the next step. And, you know, and I'm sure the fact the anti-fascists, um, have discussed that and I'm not trying to pretend like they haven't and maybe we should talk to some of them but like it needs to be a little bit more of a robust conversation than happened in that particular episode but the other thing I wanted to say about earlier in your definition of fascism is I think it would be more useful to stop saying fascist and saying more things about the entanglement of state corporate and military power because one of the things that um, Paula was saying that was so interesting to me was about how she both rhetorically was positioning herself against like, quote unquote, glo globalist or like moneyed interest or whatever it was at the same time that she was making her bed with the IMF and austerity and all of the stuff that caused so much discontent in the country to begin with. So you get this like alternative veneer of being called a fascist or whatever. And like you're a you're an outsider candidate at the same time that you're fully embracing all the neoliberal policies that are in fact fascism and so i, I don't know i think that sometimes just being specific because people don't like the idea of kowtowing to international banks elites and all of that stuff sometimes for semantic reasons it. and sometimes for real reasons and if you're just as specific about what it is you're criticizing that it makes it more clear who's the real populist and who are, who's the one that's just using the term globalist over and over again to give themselves that veneer, but isn't actually going to have the follow through? Yeah, I actually find that like a good entry point when you hear people talk about, you know, the corporate interests and all of that. And then, you know, you just like reframe it back. Um, my, the person I was talking to actually said, <laughs> said something about, um, you know, because, tr you know, how Trump's such a <laughs> good businessman. And I'm like, I... I just have been saying this all along. I'm like, I'm from Atlantic City. <laughs> I just don't know how to like make that. <laughs> like, did everyone miss the memo about what happened? I'm like, they, he, every business he had failed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, <laughs> um, but yeah. And I, but I was like, wow, you really, you know, you really think that. And you think these companies are, you know, are screwing us. Like, um, but yeah, I think you should you should check out what Bernie said because I do think it was like in some ways it just tied in with this episode. I felt like because of like kind of an antidote to that, like he was kind of going hard. And also, I was curious 
you know, if he's planning something, I don't know. I don't know if you, you probably aren't privy to that information, but um, he seemed like he was really on one. Well, good. Like a lot of people, a lot of people would be excited by that prospect. Um, It will be interesting because as we heard last week, there are a lot of criticisms of Marianne. I think they're right. And are also things that Bernie has done and believed that he does not get the same amount of heat for. And it will be interesting to see if people follow up on Bernie's non-support of BDS um, and his overwhelming silence on Ukraine funding and any number of things that could be rightly described as imperialist. Um, And whether or not that will provoke some leftward movement among these kind of candidates as the left population has, I think, become more, has, let's say, has higher expectations in the years since Bernie uh, dropped out. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for calling in, Grace. Bye. Keep the faith. All right, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Hey, does this sound all right? Mm-hmm. Loud and clear. Okay. Well, just in, to address that last conversation, I just got to remind, uh, I, I know I said this before, but it's not the case that there was a bunch of Obama to Trumpers. It was Obama to no-shows. So it's not about talking people out of voting well, for fascists. No. Like a, there, were, there were Obama to no-shows, but there were also Obama to Trumpers. It was both. But, but there was like a 10 points Obama... of Obama to no-shows, though. It was huge in Iowa. There was a, a, like a 10-point gap of Obama to no-shows. Fewer Iowans voted for oh, Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. Fewer, not more. Yeah, yeah so I, thought, all the... I mean, that, that's fine. But it's also true that but for Obama to Trumpers, Obama, uh, Hillary, Hillary would have won. So it's, I'm not trying to downplay. I mean, obviously, Obama to no-shows are a thing, too. But for the purposes of this conversation... It was this idea that there are these intractable fascists that are cannot be convinced by anything but fascism. And the reason I bring up Obama to Trumpers is because on some level, their previous willingness to commit themselves to Obama says that there's something that they're prioritizing in their voting other than just pure racism. Yes. And there's something they're pri- I think we can both be right here. There's something that it's not about. So I don't think anti-fascist is a good tech. I don't think anti-anything. You need to give them some place to go. You need to be for something. You need to have these people paint a picture for them of something attractive because people will cling to the wreckage of a sinking ship if there's nothing else in sight, you know? So that was just in sort of response to that last conversation. But what I really wanted to talk about was uh, your your uh, show today. And it was, it was the best gaslighting I've ever seen by what you rightly call the skilled speech writer. Uh, and a whole speech they gave about how identity is what insulates you from commercial capitalism and Mm -hmm. advertising no that is the opposite of true they did so Mm -hmm. good at making it sound true but identity is what captures you it's it's your identity that they sell things to not to you the more you can pay this is all edward bernays this is sigmund freud's nephew his books were it wasn't called manufacturing consent but it was something like that only it was an instruction manual back then he wrote a book called propaganda before Mm -hmm. it was a bad word like he he knew all of this stuff, and it's the more you can make people the same, the easier they are to sell things to. Because we used to have a uh, supply limited economy before World War II. Like if you could make something, somebody would buy it. It doesn't matter if it was furs or plows or whatever, linen. But then after World War II, when you had all this manufacturing equipment, you had to create demand. 
And that's when advertising comes in and mad men. And you have to create a demand to be able to fill it. And you do that by creating identities and all identities, right, left, and center. Even your identity as a leftist can be commodified and sold to you and makes you controllable. It, it puts your triggers in, it bakes everything into the cake. So it's the idea that identity, national identity, Italian identity, even worker identity, it can be a sort of place where your group momentum is manipulated and you're steered away from where you need to be. Even class identity is subject to it. But if anything, that's the one where you have to put your flag down and be like, no, the system favors the rich. And as a class based analysis, I'm always going to be working for the people who are disenfranchised by the system. That's the identity I'll like cling to because you have to have something other than just a life, a citizen. But that was my two cents on her sort of speech. That speechwriter seems to have the opposite approach to marketing that Edward Bernays did, but he was way smarter. Yeah. I mean, I frankly, I wasn't the one that said it, she had good speechwriters. Um, Paolo was. I frankly don't think it's like that compelling, but I do think it's, um, you know, it resonates with folks for reasons. And yeah. it's it's obviously, you know, what was, I I was struck by how explicitly she was painting identity as a good thing, and how all of a sudden Republicans seem to have no problem about that as they wax poetic about it here in the United States. Um, and you know, it's what everyone's always said about how the identity wasn't the problem; it was the particular identities that were finally getting a time in the shine, a time in the sun. Um, like these people don't actually have a problem with the idea of acknowledging our differences. Um, or that we might have politi politicized axes that are related to identities that we need to advocate for because those identity groups have been persecuted in the past. What they have an issue with is even naming those identities. And of course, there's the left critique of identity politics, which is the ways that it's cynically weaponized to get people to buy things or accept certain um, behaviors that are oftentimes in conflict with the interest of the identity group being appealed to. Um, but it was you know, strikingly hypocritical and it's something that I might do a radar on one day or I might just uh, talk about on bad faith depending on how things go. But thank you for, um, for, for calling in, Jonathan. I always appreciate hearing from you. Yep, thank you. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Uh, Thomas or Toma. What's <laughs> Just Thomas is cool. Okay, cool beans. What's on your mind? <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to raise the, the question of, you know, I think people have been mentioning fascism a lot, mm -hmm. um, in its historical context, um, right. Where like, what is fascism? If we're thinking about it historically, it is basically the, you know, the death knell of the left, right. Or the final confirmation, the proof of death in a sense, right. Basically by the time you have you know, Mussolini and Hitler, particularly, coming into power, the left has pretty much liquidated itself, right? Either in the Soviet Union in terms of, like, Stalinism, and also, of course, throughout the Third World, you have Stalinism as well. And in Europe, through social democracy, in America, through, you know, the New Deal, right? Um, so that, I think that brings to my, that that brings us the question of can there be fascism today 
when there hasn't been a left in like a very long time. Right? If fascism so- is taking up these discontents that people had that were once expressed by the left, which then proved a failure and sort of fascism takes it forward, like, can it even exist now? Um, so I don't really know anything about the history of fascism. If you if you say that it happens when the left fails. Uh, I mean, historically, that's when it happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I, I can't really speak to that. I don't really know anything about it. Um, but I also am, like, interested in this idea of the left's failures. Because when has there been a, a, a left of any strength? And when has it diminished in strength except for by the active efforts of other interests to suppress it? Do you know what I mean? So when, mm, yeah. I, I don't, you know, it's like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm really resisting the idea that it's like, if, if the left had tried harder, you know, if the left had done a better job, we wouldn't have had fascism. I think the fact of neoliberals suppressing organic left movements and not giving the people what they clearly are demanding democratically can open the door for a right-wing solution to those problems which are very real and growing because of neoliberalism. But, but neoliberalism didn't exist. The failure of the left or as the suppression of the left and the failure of neoliberalism. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think historically, like, neoliberalism didn't exist when fascism arose, right? We were still in the sort of, like, Fordist, or we were entering the Fordist economy. So, like, neoliberalism only comes much later once that mode comes into crisis. Um, so, yeah, and I, I also, I would, I would disagree where I think the left, it was actually, like, a failure of the left that led to fascism. It was, like, actually, it's a big problem that we have to deal with on the left that we failed, right? That we didn't stop fascism from well, occurring. Let me understand, like, what was that supposed Because in, in, again, I don't know anything about this, but in the guest telling, there was never a strong left movement in Italy for various reasons, including that, you know, there was an it kind of reconstituted itself and two parties came together into this weird kind of socially left but politically right body but there isn't a real um the implica- the association with um soviet era and communism made it so that it really didn't have legs that there was never mm. any real in, in italy he he you know explained that so i don't know like is that a failure of the left I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, I mean, what would they? What should they have done differently? I mean, if this is a conversation about how left new movements can succeed, I think that's a very productive conversation. I'm just not exactly sure. I mean, are we going to look at the the 30s and say, um, you know, the communists did a bad job? Did the communists do a bad job, or did they like have trials and round them up? <laughs> and you know what I mean? Well, right, they yeah, actually, yeah, but they would. You know what I mean? Right, but. We should, I mean, like, obviously, and, and murder be... Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. I mean, like, to what extent is it like the left failure versus, you know, the right doing what it does, the center doing what it does? Sure. But like, we still have to believe that the left had the potential to succeed, right? If not, then what was the point? 
If not, then what is the point now? Well, well, so sure. the left must so, have made some mistakes in order to fail. We can't just blame it on well, the opposition. We have to take responsibility for our mistakes. Right. But the same, that's like, that's like me saying, I got mugged on the street. So what mistakes can I make it so that I don't have it again? Like, well, no. I, the, 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 the scenario is like, okay, yep. well, strategically, strategically, how can I get from point A to point B safely in my life? Maybe I don't go out at a certain time. Maybe I carry pepper spray, whatever, whatever. But I wouldn't characterize it as a mistake that I made an error somehow in like walking down my block and it's my fault that I got mugged. Right. Okay. So like, let's say in America. It sounds a little victim blame. Yeah. I don't know. Like strategies to survive, strategies to be successful. That's the, that's the conversation that we had. That's the whole ongoing project of this podcast and much of the left. But I don't frame it as how, you know, we failed. The left is terrible. Let's, no, Let's that's figure not... out like that you you deserved it. You deserve fascism because you were so shitty. Or, or I know it's not what you're saying, but that's kind of I guess what I'm resisting that implication. Yeah, I'm not saying that we are clearly no one deserves fascism. Um, but I do think that, for instance, I mean the left can, like for instance, the left always sort of loses by liquidating itself, even outside of like the opposition it faces that of course and you know the left is going to face opposition from capitalism so we can't be like oh gosh they tried to you know do bad stuff to us uh you know not our fault we have to anticipate that obviously it's going to happen but like for instance the left in the united states around the time of the new deal basically liquidated itself because they stopped being a left because they became democrats they were no longer a left, right? That was not something that was done by the, you know, the government or the private corporations or whatever to them. That was something that they did to themselves. And so we have to understand that and learn from these mistakes, right? Which I think the left refuses to look back and accept these as mistakes and try and learn from them. No, I'm just, I'm really confused because I don't, you know, I, again, speak to whatever happened in 1930. I can speak to what happened in, let's say, 2016, 2020. And there has been a very robust conversation about what a bad idea it was for Bernie to basically unwind the our revolution apparatus. It was a very bad idea for Obama to do the same thing in 2008. I feel like we talk about that all the time, but mm -hmm. it's not, quote unquote, but left making the decisions, it's individuals like Obama and Bernie who are making those decisions. And this is why there are these accusations of folks who aren't real leftists, sheep herding people into the Democratic Party. Because the argument is, and I'm not saying I'm making this argument, but the argument is, if they were not, if they were genuine leftists, they would not have done that. And so there's a question about is the left being co-opted, infiltrated, those kinds of things. And is the real left being suppressed in the way all of the assassinations of the 60s speak to? But I don't know. I don't think that there's any confusion. I mean, am I wrong? Have we not been talking well, for the last eight to 12 years about how, what a bad idea it was for all of these organizations that sprung up around these particular electoral projects should have been used to a much better effect? Yes, that, that, has been dis that, that has been discussed, but I don't think that's actually the root problem, right? The root problem here is that the Bernie campaign or the Obama campaign or whatever was not the left. 
right? It was a fake left. No, I'm from even the working. Right. So, so there's some left that's not that. That. Well, no, no, what? there is no left. There is no left. Okay, so again, so what's the what's the concern? Either there's a left that that we need to be, look back into the past and realize the left didn't um, demobilize itself, which is a lesson. Is it is that we we have to that lesson because what? If there is no left, then what's the lesson that we're learning exactly? Because there is no left. If there is a left that has been demobilized, which I would argue is true, then I think that that's a lesson we all understand. But the question is, how do we prevent that from happening? when there are folks who who perhaps aren't legitimately committed to the project who are at the helm of these things. I think Black Lives Matter is the same thing. I think that is real. And there's real people who want real positive social outcomes and people who really meant well, who are part of that project. But leadership sure. was not it and derailed that project and everything it could have been. So I, I, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not disagree. I'm just trying to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out by the left, I don't just I don't mean just like people who mean well. There are a lot of people obviously involved in all these movements who mean well. Um, the 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 question is as I would see it is if we can understand that the left is dead and has been for like over a hundred years or about a hundred years or so, um, then we can try and understand the history of the left, what were the mistakes, what went wrong, and understand how that history reflects itself in the symptomology of what we would, you know, quote unquote, what is the quote unquote left today, right? And maybe through understanding that, then we can reconstitute a real left. Of course, this is very difficult. I, you know, I don't have an answer. I wish I did. If I did, I would be doing it. Um, but I think we sort of neglect that and rush into either various electoral strategies uh, or rush into various, you know, activist things. And none of that leads to the Wait a minute, wait a minute. So we can't rush into electoralism. We can't rush into various activist things, which was what, like mutual aid or other other kind of like it, th this or at least thinking of that as yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry? No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm not saying this of you, Thomas, but like this this yeah. kind of conversation is why some people are kind of fed up entirely. I, I gotta say. Because it feels like a lot of critique for the sake of critique. And if the if the if the if the statement being made is we should learn from our past mistakes and not make them again, nobody would disagree with that, and that could be a, a, a ten second conversation. But if well, there's all of this, well, we got to sit and think about how not to do this, and we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. Negative, negative, negative. What's the affirmative prescription? What do you want people to do? Yeah, I, I think I think what I think what we need to do now is I mean, like to you know take from Adorno on this, like we need to step back and think why we're here and understand the history of why the quote unquote well, left acts the way it does with before all due we respect, can possibly move forward. With, with all due respect, I'm not saying, I think that you are a good faith actor and yeah. like, however, if I were to invent someone to derail <laughs> revolutionary action, I would have them sound exactly like you right now. <laughs> but what is the revolutionary action? Where is it happening? Like Th this is why people like the RBN crew are so exhausted. Just go out and do a mutual aid project. 
Go out and run for local but election. That's not go socialism. out and do whatever you're That's just do. liberal activism, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with liberal activism, but it is what it is. Okay, well, I, I got to tell you, sitting around talking about reading Adorno or whatever the hell is 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 elitist poppycock. I, I'm not saying that it's not a time and a place uh, for theory, but there has to be a way, Thomas, there has to be a way. If you've done all the reading, then tell us what we should have learned from the reading. Don't sit here and tell us do the reading. You've read Adorno, and you're, you're sitting here and telling me a bunch of vague things about how if we only look back, then we would know. This is the same conversation, by the way, I had with Gerald Horn. Gerald Horn came on the podcast and said how important, how, how dumb the left was for not understanding international solidarity and why international uh, international lens is so important. I was, I'll, I'll heat it up. Okay. Explain to us. That's why you're here. You're an expert. Explain to us why the left, what the left is missing out on by not having as international a focus as you think it should have. And I wasn't getting an answer. No, I, I think he's right about that, by the way. I'm not disagreeing with him. And mm -hmm. I have the utmost respect for him. But at a certain point, if people need to stop telling people why they're wrong and why they need to read the books that they've read and just be a comrade and explain what people need to know. Because I got to tell you, most people don't have the time or energy or interest. So what is it that we need to know that is holding us back? I mean, gosh, there, I, there's so much, right? Like, I, I do think, like, as... I think you're a millennial, I'm a millennial as well. Like, I do think the millennial left, which we, I have to say, have failed. Um, we had bad teachers, to be honest. We had the new left, the, I guess, they're boomers, right? The new left generation, which had also failed. Um, and basically taught us that they succeeded and that our goal was just to continue their legacy, um, which hasn't really worked. Um, so no, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I do too. I'm not trying to put that in you, Thomas, but I'm saying if yeah. you're going to come up in here and say, well, everyone, everyone is misplaced or we're going in the wrong direction because people haven't read the books that I've read, then I think you kind of got to have some sense of what's so critical in those books that will really change everything for everybody. Because people out here organizing their workplaces, they're trying to, to, to at least raise the public consciousness around general strikes. People are doing mutual aid projects. People are surviving. You oh, know, sure. People no, no, people should survive. People should, absolutely, people absolutely should do all that stuff. Like, that's just, like, Again, as I said, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not like moving the project of socialism forward, but th that's fine. Like it's improving your life and some other people's lives. Great. I don't know. I think Go I disagree. That. I think that people going into communities and demonstrating how they can make people's lives better, the way the Black Panthers did with their mutual aid projects and their breakfast project, a breakfast project that was so successful and so embarrassing to the U.S. government that they had to start their own uh, food program for, for kids. You know, and that it was so successful, a project that was so successful, they had to basically murder all of the Black Panther leadership using the FBI and CIA tapping and all of that in order to get their get their way. I think that that actually does advance a project of socialism. And that's why the government has been so oppositional to it. I think getting people's public trust by showing that you respect their lives the day to day and are willing to help them through those kind of mutual aid projects is extremely critical to the job of advancing socialism. And I would argue more critical all due respect, than reading a door now. I mean, I think it could be, but it depends on what the horizons are and to where it's directed. And I think, unfortunately, in the absence of a party, it does not have the horizons of overcoming capitalism. I just, that's, it's, it's sad, but it's true. 
Um, that's the state we're in. And we have to try and understand that. And how do we move past this? How do we move forward? Okay. I, I just don't like, you know, it's all great. You should do it. But Okay, well, let's keep this conversation going. I appreciate you calling in, Tomas. I got to get you some Thank of these you. other players. But keep the faith, and I appreciate you for calling. All right, Nick, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bree, can you hear me all right? Loud and clear. Great. Um, so my question is actually off topic. I was hoping to talk to you last week after the labor episode. All right, if we talk about something besides fascism. Sure. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, so I've been a labor organizer at UPS uh, within the Teamsters for the last seven years. And um, I'm a communist. I, I, I joined uh, because there was a... Uh, um, an org that I that I joined at the time I became a communist. It was building a, a national labor concentration uh, there at UPS, and um, we've we've accomplished a lot. I, I don't know uh, if you're aware of the uh, Teamster elections last year, but we managed to kick out the uh, um, uh, Jimmy Hoffa Juniors uh, uh, had been running things for the past quarter century, and um, mm -hmm. managed to elect new uh, reform leadership, and we're looking uh, at the likelihood of a strike in uh, 2023. Um, it's uh, the only thing anybody's talking about right now, and um, it's looking increasingly likely that we're going to have our mm. first national strike since 1997. Um, so I, I've learned a lot in my last seven years organizing, um, uh, fighting battles local and national, um, and I was hoping you could help me understand uh, the the frustration you felt about people saying, um, you know, we need to organize and uh, general strike is on the horizon right now, because I find myself saying that uh, quite often. Um, I think it was the the episode with with Chris Hedges and uh, Sam with that really uh, came to a head. Um, and um, I, 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 I don't know if you've seen these, but the last few years, like every so often, somebody just declares that we're going to do a general strike um, and there'll be memes passed around on social media. Like this is the day we're all doing it. It's, it's May Day this year. It's whatever. And uh, I'm always, uh, you know, making fun of those because it's just so silly and unrealistic just to, you know, think you can just declare it instead of organizing for it. Um, well, that's not and, what the RBI guys have, or, and women have done. Okay. So, I mean, if someone said, let's have UPS go on strike, seven years, you know, I, I would hope that nobody would say, well, that's stupid, they shouldn't strike. They would say, yeah, hell yeah, let's, uh, let me help you organize it. Let me help you make that a possibility. And if people think that we should organize around a general strike and that there's work required for it to happen, which I think everyone and all the RBN people acknowledge, then that's what they're doing. But instead, people just mock it, mock the idea of a general strike and say things that are very um, defeatist, like it could just never happen. The same way that I think it would have been a really inappropriate seven years ago when we started organizing EPS to say it can never happen. And in fact, let's not even let people talk about the prospect of organizing a strike at this organization. Do you know what I mean? So there's, yeah. it's one thing to say, oh, that's tough, but let me help, a yes and approach. And it's a very different thing to mock and deride. And you saw the difference in the approach to force the vote, for instance. There were some people who thought they were going to mock and deride. It was appropriate to mock and deride 
people's efforts to organize a march and other people who might say, hey, that march wasn't as well attended as I would have liked. Let me help you do better the next time. And I think it's the difference between allies and people who are, if not ops, then being useful idiots, you know, for ops, you know? Mm Yeah, I, I guess maybe part of my misunderstanding is that, you know, I'm not on Twitter and I, I don't see these people who are like uh, mocking the the notion of a general strike at any point in the future. And, and, uh, and well, they're, you know, I don't know who they are, where they come from. People have never heard. And I was one of these people. People, you, you say that there's these Facebook memes of general strikes. I never heard the words general and strike put together in my entire life before 18 months or so ago. So, and I brought it up in conversation with someone the other day and they asked me, what's a general strike? How can you ever live in a world where anything like that happens when your average American doesn't know what a general strike is, doesn't really know what a union is or what it's for, mm-hmm. much less how to organize one. I think that for all the talk of Adorno, <laughs> sorry to pick on Th- Thomas, but for all the talk of all this theorists, people don't know basic things about the avenues that exist to, inc- to, to have power over their employers and get rights, benefits, and, and funds for themselves, salaries for yeah, yeah totally. I mean, there, there's people at UPS, like I'll, I'll run into new hires who like haven't, like don't even know that they're in a union yet and have no yeah, idea what 100%. that is. So to me, like the idea that there being a general strike summit, that's what they had that got so much derision, a summit, not a general strike, but let's have a summit to see, mm-hmm. invite labor leaders, invite real organizers to have a conversation about what it would, what it would take. And they were mocked roundly for doing that. And I think that that is a real problem because there are, I'm sorry, again, I don't mean to focus on Thomas, but there are a lot of people on the list who have the approach like Thomas that until we've read the exact reading list that is being prescribed, no one can do anything at all. So I don't have an issue with organizing, obviously. I have people, I have an issue with people who say we need to organize as a way to cut off any other kind of activity that people are doing. Can't have a general strike summit because we have to organize. Not to not even thinking about how that's part of the organizational structure, even attract people to the task at hand. You know, we can't. We can't. We. I mean, look, listen to what Thomas just said. We can't do electoralism. We can't do mutual aid. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. Okay, that's demoralizing. So what can we do? And so your example is a wonderful one. It's obviously. Amazing. I'm sorry I haven't been following this um, UPS action more closely. I gave it a quick Google and it, there's tons about it. And I should see if we can get a guest and even talk about it on the podcast. But like people, the, the, the knowledge that is required, I think that the, the, the public imagination needs to be expanded on such a level. If you don't even know what a strike is or what it is to withhold one's labor, the projects like a general strike summit, I think are immensely valuable. And, and, and especially since there are a lot of people who are not employees of the kinds of places where they, there are a lot of, especially in this podcast, and there are a lot of white collar employees. The British people, there are a lot of people sitting around watching the news and consuming content that aren't really in a position to, to organize their workforce, but could potentially, per um, Ross uh, Grutens, give to a strike fund, become a solidarity member of something like the union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And pretending like there's only one way to act, whether it's by reading a certain book or by unionizing your workplace, I think makes a lot of people feel like there's nothing for them to do when there's a role for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. And I think there is, there is a, um, there's a variety of different, uh, things we can do and ways to engage. Um, 
I guess I, I that, that, that helps me understand the uh, your feelings about the general strike thing, gives me more context for it. Um, but I, I think it was a, a Colin episode uh, last week. You you talked about people just using organize as just kind of like a abstract hand wave, like, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I, I do uh, find myself saying stuff like that because I feel like they're, I mean, we really don't have power until we have an organized working class. Um, there's uh, not a lot we can do, not, not a lot we can uh, really achieve except on a very local level um, in places where, where we're well organized. Um, without that big, broad, militant, um, organized working class. Um, and I just don't think there's any way around that except for people going into the unions, um, leftists going into the unions, uh, following the tactics of um, William Z. Foster, uh, who uh, was really pivotal in uh, building the, the movement to where it was in the 1930s. He later became a, uh, the leader of the Communist Party. and um, like I, I think we we just really have to be pushing uh, more for that. Like there, there's, I mean, there's a lot we can do right now. Like the reason we're building the concentration in UPS is because, you know, it's a major company. It's a Fortune 500 company. It has billions of dollars in profit every year. But more importantly, it's a strategic choke in the U.S. economy, where four percent of U.S. GDP flows through UPS every year. And it's something that anyone can join. Like it doesn't matter if you're in a major city or a small town or, you know, an out of the way rural area. UPS can get UPS. Like it doesn't matter if you have a record or or uh, other problems like finding employment. Like UPS is always hiring, um, and we can really build something really powerful there. Um, it's not the only place we should be building power, but it's you know it's a very particular strategic point that we can go to right now, especially around the eve of a you know, massive historic strike. And I just think we need to be pushing that idea more and talking to more actual on the ground rank and file labor organizers who are doing this work. Because I, I think it's, it's not the only thing, but it, it might be the primary thing. So again, I, I have no issue with that. This is, this is what's so confusing to me. Why does everyone have to frame everything as a, a, an either or, like mutually exclusive, like a zero sum game. I, I literally last week people were mad at me because because I agree with you so much, and because because I thought that the interview with an actual rail worker was so important, I unlocked fr- m- Friday Monday's episode and locked Thursday's episode instead and switched them around so that the period, you know, horse race chit chat with other leftists was the one behind the paywall and the labor episode where people were calling for solidarity with the pending strike action was the free one. And guess what? I got nothing but people bitching and moaning about it. <laughs> oh, why can't we hear, why can't we hear RBN guys pop off? You know, like, I, I can't win with you people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I don't disagree with you, my friend. Like, I, I have so much on respect for the work that you're doing. I want to be able to facilitate it in any way I can with the platform that I have. And I'm so glad that you're telling me about it now so that I can be included and cover it more on this show. But I don't understand why, well, my issue with organizing is not organizing, it's people who, anytime you bring up anything else, oh, I'm going to a baseball game. Okay, but you have me organized? Oh, I had a nice talk with my mom. Okay, but organized? Oh, I wanna do a general strike. Okay, but organized? 
oh, well, who do you think's gonna run in 2024? Okay, but organized? Like it becomes, not everybody, not actual organizers, but there is a way that it's brought up in a conversation by people who wanna sound like they have, they're asked tough questions about how to advance the left. They're hard questions that oftentimes, I don't expect anybody to have a, a full, fully fleshed out answer to. But for like the first year of this podcast, I had a whole string of people come on. I asked them hard things about why the world was backed up and why we didn't seem to be able to make progress. And they would just throw the old word out there in the ether like it was a magical solution that made them sound like they have a really big brain. And if you follow it up, okay, but there are, you know, 40,000 people or whatever who are gonna listen to this episode who aren't, many of whom are not in a union most of whom are not in a union and many of whom are not in a workplace that typically organizes like, you know, somebody's law firm or they work for the state of Massachusetts or whatever the hell people do, or they're in, or they're in one of these horrible rideshare companies that doesn't let, they don't let you unionize. I mean, people are in a lot of different situations. They're, they're unemployed, they're stay-at-home parents, there are a lot of different kinds of things. What's the solution to them? Can you talk to them? Can you please give me a response that's not literally directed to someone who's already in a unionized workforce? And at that point, people start to crumble. Or if I ask them, hey, I understand that labor and organizing is the most important point, 100% conceded. And I'll say that 20 times in a row if you really need me to make the point and write it on the chalkboard like Bart Simpson. Okay. Now, if you will allow me just for one second to ask you about the phone, and this is what happened to Shama Sawant, Chris Hedges episode. There is going to be a midterm election. Whatever ha organizing happens, the election is still going to happen. How can we take advantage of that opportunity, right? Oh, but we need to organize. Oh, okay, like totally. But do we think we should just sit out the election and ignore it all together? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. So how should we exploit the, that episode for the benefit of our life? Okay, but we need to organize. Do you see what I'm saying, Nick? So at a certain point, sometimes it's, if it's specific and it's directing people to this activity, then obviously it's a good thing. If it's something that ends up being thrown out there as a space holder or something that is more specific and, di and directed to something else that people could actually do, you know, then it becomes demotivating. And that's that's what I have a problem with, not with organizing, but people using it as a as a way to deflect from other kinds of actions. Yeah, that makes sense. It definitely should be specific. My specific is go join UPS right now if anybody's looking for a job. Um, go join UPS right now. Yeah. fully and we will we will do some follow-up on that because this looks actually really interesting obviously everyone's been talking about uh how brutal it was over the summer and all of the ring amazon cam bullshit that came along with it so i, I just really really want to say um, yeah, I, but I appreciate you bringing that perspective here. over it i'm sorry yeah oh just, just saying I, I ended up in the hospital with heat sickness when i was driving a package car Jesus uh, last Christ. summer and uh that, that's that's a uh, whole story. Um, what was the, wait, 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 don't skip over that. What, what was the okay. response from UPS when that happened? Oh, the, I, I have uh, a long history. I, I'm, a, I'm a steward now, and so I have injury cases sometime, and their only concern is uh, um, protecting themselves from liability. Um, they, they want you to only go see uh, their doctor, and uh, I was, I was uh, out delivering packages, and I had been like puking for uh two days because of the heat and uh um it uh i was in this uh in uh, probation period they call it packet to trust trying to get a permanent job as a driver um so i knew it wasn't in my interest to actually like 
report an injury or, or complain or, or act like I, I couldn't do the job. So I was really in a bind. Um, I didn't have the union protection that you get after you get through that 30 day probationary period. Um, so you felt like you were uh, going to be punished for, for speaking out about the conditions on the road. Yeah. And I was ultimately because I, I ended up like I, uh, I had to call a supervisor. They had come out and uh, they were on the phone with their higher ups and, and uh, trying to uh, um, uh, find some work around where I, I um, was able to go to, to the company doctor when we were literally like in the parking lot of a hospital. I was just saying, I need to go to the ER. Like that I, I just need to go to the ER and it, it took maybe an hour of wrangling until they finally relented and just let me walk across the parking lot and go in. And I ended up staying until uh, uh, three in the morning. They gave me seven IV bags. I was having like organ failure. My kidneys were shutting down. Oh my God. Uh, my wife was pregnant at the time and uh, she had to come out and uh, yeah, uh, UPS is a brutal, brutal company. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Wait, what, what is a company doctor? Like they have their own like little shitty clinic, uh, somewhere in the city. And, um, uh, for whatever reason, like that's the only place they want to take you when you have, uh, any kind of injury. Um, whereas we have like amazing healthcare at UPS, like the best you can get anywhere outside of like being a U.S. Senator. It's just like incredible, incredible coverage. Um, uh, but they're trying to derail you off of, of going and getting something that they could be charged for and they want you to see yeah, their person first? Yeah, I, I don't know the whole bureaucracy of it. I think like a lot of it has to do with workers' comp um, that they can like, um, they, it, it's just more of a hassle for them. It might cost them more money if, if you go see your own doctor instead of theirs. Right. Oh, boy. I mean, look, I'll, I'll reach out to you again, Nick, uh, if and when this UPS uh, episode gets scheduled because... I mean, that's a lot. Has yeah, it been a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was asking about the nature of the coverage of this so far in your view. Have, 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 has the president accurately kind of representing the experience of UPS drivers in your view? Because part of the stuff with the train strike, with the coverage seemed to wild. Nobody would even, like the articles were not mentioned. I'm telling you, when I say that I had to read like 20 articles just to get like two sentences summarizing what the asks were, like... Mm -hmm. They just were not, I mean, I, it was almost as if they knew that the ask were so reasonable and so minimal that to say, oh, all they want is like a day off work would blow up the competing media narrative about how this was going to be horrible for consumers and the train workers were just at, being assholes. Yeah, it depends on the issue, like the heat issue. I think it was like really well covered this past summer. Yeah. Um, I saw there was like a lot of sympathetic stories about that. There was the ring video of the guy uh, uh, passing out on the doorstep. I got a lot yeah. of coverage. Um, uh, that was good. Uh, I, but there was like, recently there was a, a driver that went viral on TikTok just talking about how well-paid um, drivers who have made it through the progression over four years and made it to top rate or compensated. Like they make like, it's like uh, $42 an hour or something. And uh, I think there was a lot of um, uh, people talking about, but, you know, we, we've got it, you know, too good or good enough as it is. And like, you know, why are we going to be asking for more? I would anticipate more of that kind of uh, angle as we yeah. approach next yeah. August. Well, look, I'm going to let you get back to your uh, adorable little newborn. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, but thanks for calling in, Nick. And really, truly, thank you for flagging this for me. I, I, we definitely should do an episode on it. Thank you so much, Bree. All right. Take care. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Um, and thank you, Bide, uh, for your notes in the chat about how that has to do with workers' comp. We'll maybe have you speak to that uh, at some point. But Rika, how are you doing hey. twice, twice in like a week-long period? I feel like, uh, what did I do? What did I do? What did you deserve? It's honor. <laughs> The stars, pleasure. the stars aligning. The stars <laughs> are aligning, Brie. Yes. Um, I love, I mean, I've, I've been wanting to ask it because I feel like this question around like, who's a fascist keeps coming up. It's just like a question that keeps coming up because now all of a sudden mainstream media is hip to the fact that there are like real fascist movements out there. So now they're like, oh my God, fascism's everywhere. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It literally is. <laughs> We were actually telling you about it in 2016 when Mr. Trump was running, but y'all didn't, didn't believe us. Don't believe us. It's kind of crazy. Um, but that was actually like just a comment was like, I feel like the, the um, it's just interesting how this sh there's like a shift in resistance in terms of who's now like wanting to claim that people are fascist and versus like, okay, so in 2016 when Donald Trump was running, I felt like when I was doing my union organizing work, talking to all my friends. And I was like, this dude is a fascist. This is crazy. Like I was like sounding the alarms and like was telling, telling everybody and people be like, yeah, is he really though? Is he really though? I'm like, just, just, just look at what he wants to do. Look at who's like mobilizing around him. Like, and then you had the proud boys come out and all that, just all that shit. And I'm like, how do you deny that he's a fascist? And then you have all these liberals that are saying like, oh, he's not really a fascist. He's just like kind of a character, you know, just all that mm -hmm. shit. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, wait, 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 you know, with the Muslim ban. And then all, like all mm -hmm. of that shit happened. And then it was like, yeah, yeah, he's a fascist. So mm -hmm. this is, this, I feel like it's the same thing with this Georgia Milano or whatever her name is. Like it's the same shit. I remember by remembering the guy from um, Law and Order SVU. Isn't his name Maloney? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Georgia Maloney. Georgia, yes, yes. Perfect, perfect. So she she was in this, Guardian did like a piece on Steve Bannon about how his far right populist movement like had halted in Europe like three years ago or something. I just like YouTubed it. And she's like featured in it, being interviewed with him. Mm -hmm. Like this dude, this dude is known to go across the world trying to organize little authoritarian fascist movements like that's his mo and i'm just like why why i i feel like and then then you have people like and i i just have bones to pick with them because i feel like sometimes they're a little too smug but i do love them like jacobin folks who are like what's this like crazy outrage about fascism it's like a distraction and i'm like yeah it's, i'm smarter i already knew how are you so surprised it's like but the worst kind of twitter comment is like why are you so surprised brianna like, yeah, yeah. Knowledge anything is to be like a naive dope in the eyes of like the big brains. <laughs> right. But it, but it's also like there's a denial of it. There's like a saying like it doesn't help us to to freak out about them as a fact. It's like no, like because the thing the reason why it's important to understand that they're a fascist movement is because usually what comes with a fascist movement is the mass mobilization of violence that's legitimized. Mm -hmm which we mm -hmm. saw after Donald Trump, that did happen, happened everywhere. 
and we saw and we're gonna see it in italy like it's gonna happen so i think that's the part where i get really frustrated is i i my frustration with this like hesitancy or this because my my people the people i claim and i hang out with were the the antifas the anarchos like those are my people right like those are my crew that's my north star they've been ringing the alarms on this shit for like a long time and yeah 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 there's some like hyperbole that can happen with them i'm not saying that there isn't but it's just like it, they they the reason why they mobilize and try to defend themselves because they understand that it's that this is what happens and then people are like acting very brand new when it does and then who are the people that suffer we are you know and it, it just i guess i'm just like frustrated that we are constantly it's like that i think it's little red riding hood right where she's like oh my what big teeth you have oh my what big eyes you have oh my oh my and then it's a fucking wolf you know like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's just call it a wolf and move on. And also, let's force fucking right here to have to defend themselves, right? We should be okay with throwing that label around and calling all of that right populist shit a fascist movement and let them have to defend themselves. Let them what do you defend think, themselves. Rico, what do you think about um, what Grace was saying at the top of the episode? I'm not sure if you were there here for that. Um, but she was saying that like, in some ways the definition, because it's so polarizing or the label can be interpreted in so many ways, um, that if you, if the interest is getting people to stop being a fascist, to address what it's trying to appeal to with specificity and off railing people from fascism or fascist politicians or movements as the thing that's going to satisfy the, their troubles and being more vocal about presenting an alternative from the left. I mean, that's what I feel in some ways my project has been on the Hill and me getting into some of this COVID stuff. And there's going to be a follow-up COVID episode on Thursday that is like a response to the Vinay Prasad, which is itself a response to the Walker and Robbie episode. <laughs> I can't win with you people. Right here. I'm trying to I'm trying to get all the angles and have people air all the stuff and I wish they would all come on at once, but that's not always possible. So right, right. Um, but that that, you know, if I if I look at people who are saying some stuff about COVID that I don't think is right, then my solution is not to just name call, but to say, okay, what in here is appealing? What in here does feel right? Okay. Well, it does seem like there's some indifference to the effects of school closures among like this the CDC liberal crowd. And can we acknowledge that there is a problem here while also not trying to diminish that you know, the utility of vaccines or the utility of masking. You know, is there, a, is there a different path to chart here that acknowledges some of these concerns? You know, people don't want to shut down their businesses because they'll go broke. Okay, well, can the left chart a path that says, yes, it's really bad of you to go broke, but here's the social supports you would have wanted you to have so you can keep your business open. Right. Like, what, right. why, you know, what do you think about that approach as opposed to saying, you know, this person's a fascist and just, you shouldn't like a fascist. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, but you know. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I think it's like all context dependent, to be honest. I, you know, right. Like there are certain moments when you're going to rev up and you want to be like really, really clear and kind of intimidating and say like, oh no, this person's a fascist, right? Like there, there's a reason why the right is, was so successful at reappropriating or yeah, reappropriating wokeness to mean something very completely, completely different from what it originally meant, which is because they kept repeating it over and over and over mm-hmm. and labeling people. 
you know, we, people aren't dumb, they're hip to it, but there are a lot of people who still use it culturally, right? And it means something. And I think that is something that can be effective on the left too, right? Like it, it's just not as sexy. Like, you know, saying you're imperialist isn't as sexy as like saying you're woke, you know, you know, whatever, right? I just, I just think we have to get creative with it. So I think both strategies are effective. I don't think it's not, I'm not making a case for one or the other. My, my issue was more like we, like a, a conversation with someone of the Robbie, for instance, who is like, this just sounds like, the right in America to me, and I'd be like, yeah, they're fascist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's crazy, right? Crazy that we got fascism here. And let him be like all kerfuffled about it and be like, oh my God, what are you saying? We're fascist. That's just outrageous. And, oh, well, you just said it sounds like that. It, that's this is textbook fascism. What do you want? Like, I, I just feel like we should be a little bit more, Sometimes it's okay to be indignant and smug a little bit, you know, with some of these commentators who... Well, yeah, I, I think that you know, Nick's, Nick was, was in part so successful when he was on Rising because there was something very unapologetic about his delivery. And the audience ate it up, by the way. An yes. audience that normally is not here for defenses of communism or whatever loved it. You know, yes. and I, you know, I think I tried to, I tried to press... Uh, um, um, why is my brain doing this? Cornell West. I tried to press Cornell West on, you know, but isn't Biden the fascist also? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. Yeah, that. yeah, I love there that. I some, loved it. Live for it. Live for there, it. You know, there was some <laughs> unwillingness, you know, on his part to like go there entirely. And yeah. you know, I think that there's there's a lot to be gained. Like this, this is part of I think what the frustration is with all of the Justice Democrats crowd and um, Bernie and a lot of the other progressives that there's a world where they're the ones who cre- who who are spending their time and their platform calling out Biden and neoliberalism as fascist, mm-hmm. or at mm-hmm. least making a much stronger critique than they do. But they don't yeah. do that, and so the yeah. only t- and if you're if you're willing to call any fascist or Trump a fascist, fascist and you're not willing to call Biden a fascist. What you're doing is, in effect, creating a hierarchy where Biden looks like the reasonable alternative. And that might not be your goal, but that is what's happening. So there is a kind of whitewashing of the harms that can be caused by neoliberalism when you you are willing to use the word, but only in specific contexts. And that's how Democrats get away with Bill Blue no matter who, and we're the better, lesser of two evils, and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just all tools are available for us in the toolbox, right? Like, and so I, I was, another point that I was going to make was the Katie Halper, her beautiful, beautiful retort back around, well, is, isn't Israel an apartheid state? Like, yeah. it was just like, oh, it was perfect. It was, it was perfect so good. Because, it was so good because we don't, in, in the mainstream media, we don't get the like long exploration of that, right? It's just, yep. oh, you're anti-Semitic, right? Right. It's just like the back and forth and her ability to hit like all those points and come with all of the fucking receipts, all yep. of the receipts was like a bombshell, right? And of course the Hill didn't want that out there, right? Like, of course they didn't want that out there because it was so powerful. It was so powerful of a so I, I'm, my, my point is not, um, 
definitely not one or the other. They all have merit. And I think it depends on who you're talking to, when you're talking to them. I feel like that's usually my points. But my more, more of my fr- frustration with this question around Georgia Maloney specifically is just like, it, we, we really don't have to hesitate with this one, y'all. We can just go in. Let's just go in on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it been interesting for me to watch. I think I saw a segment on Jimmy Dore where he didn't just, but he basically said that, you know, she's no more or less fascist than, um, you know, our homegrown ones, our Bidens or whatever. And uh, I think I saw on RBN that was to a similar effect. And it, it is it is interesting to me that it does seem like large parts of the left seem a little reluctant to apply the word, but it doesn't seem be- to be because they're trying to make excuses for her as much as they're maybe worried about, you know, they're them calling Melania fascist being used to um, elevate or make 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 our make liberals seem good by comparison. And it's curious to me because I think that that's a worthwhile that's weird. At the same time, it does seem it's hard to pull it off without seeming a little like you're wanting to soft pedal what it, what it is Maloney has done and who she is, which is why I wanted to have yeah. uh, Alon in the first place. Yeah. And I and I appreciate it. I, I think we do need conversations that ex, like that take the assumption that she is a fascist and then go deep into it to explain it. I think that's a, that's perfectly necessary. And um, I would, I would like us to like put our like boxing gloves on a little bit more and start just like, you know, these are like good, these are politicians. These aren't like normal people. These aren't our neighbors, right? Like these people are elected officials and like, we should be like slinging all the mud at them in my opinion. (laughs) Like we should be like, I don't know, like, yes, her nail polish is fascist. Like, I mean, that's stupid and silly, but like, I'm just like, I'm like, we, we should, we can be cutthroat. It's okay to be cutthroat with these people. They're not going to have any kid gloves for the migrants that they're going to be throwing in the concentration camps. Right. They're not, they're. Well, I mean, what is it? Apala said that she had advocated for sinking the ships of migrants coming across. Yeah, the- ex- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, come on, y'all. Come on, come on. No, they spare no, they spare no, um, they they don't care. They do not care about the least of us. So I'm. It's it's all good. We should go after them. All right. Look, I always appreciate hearing from you, Rika. Thank you for for laying it straight. <laughs> laying it <laughs> Likewise for you. All right. Take care of yourself, and I hope to see you again. Blessings with sure. your soon. For sure. For sure. Take all right. Keep the faith. All right, Tucker. Oh, speaking of fascist nail polish, I got my nails done. I was in New York over the weekend for the first time in a really long time. And my nail broke, so I went in to get it done, get my nails done. And I just popped into some random place, and it turns out that they were, like, an organic, uh, cruelty-free kind of a shop. And I was like, okay, cool, that's a nice little thing, as long as they're not doing, like, is this going to be twice as much money? Anyway, I sit down, they get started, and at that point, they explain to me that they can't fix my broken nail and add an extension because they don't really do their focus is so much on this other stuff that they don't do like kind of what I would call the bread and butter work of uh, nail tech stuff. So I had a, a little bit of a heart to heart with my tech. And I said, look, we're already in this. The polish is off my nails. Like we're deep in the thick of this, but look at me and look at it. Look at me, look at me. I believe in you. I think between the two of us, between your cosmetology training and me having gotten my nails done many times, 
we can figure out how to attach this extension to this nail. And by golly, we got through it. She did great. <laughs> so this is this is a shout out to the non-fascist nail polish and nail polish technicians that really went through this journey with me yesterday on 6th Street in New York City, 6th Avenue in New York City. God bless you. Truly the Lord's work. <laughs> Tucker, what's on your mind this evening? Well, a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I know Rika said that she was uh, frustrated, but it seems like the universe always just likes to punch me in the face because like, I've always had the backup plan of moving to Italy if any, if like if shit ever goes down in the United States, because like I'm like part of the Italian diaspora, like I I have Italian citizen, like I can get Italian citizenship, and then this happens and punches me right in the face when I was actually just recently talking about oh I'm gonna go visit there, like check things out, but yeah, yeah that, that kind of pisses me off. Point, it still might be better off in the United States. Yeah. But hey, they got free healthcare there, though. Who right. knows? But uh, I've been me wanting to call in about the uh, James Zogby episode because okay. that got me animated on both sides. Okay. Because, okay, starting off, like he said that I don't know if he was just joking around because I he might just have a dry sense of humor how he comes off, but he says that he said that he got on the DNC the hard way and that he was appointed. And like when I heard that, I just started screaming because as somebody who has actually worked within the Democratic Party, that's the easiest way to get on any part, any committee is somebody just putting you there. Like you don't have to run. You don't have to get elected. You don't have to convince the majority of the like the committee to actually vote for you to be in the DNC. So that part just kind of that because of his politics it would have been like flatly impossible for him to get on the committee through any kind of like election and that when he said it was the hard way it was because the the you know the roundabout exception to that is if you work for a politician who runs for office who runs for president then you get a seat so the idea being like it's not that being appointed is easy but that you basically have to mount a whole presidential campaign in order to get on there if you're a leftist, because otherwise they'll never elect you. Oh, I completely understand that point of view. But it just kind of irked me when he was saying that, because he didn't even... I, I listened to that episode multiple times, because it just mm -hmm. made me that... I, I like to hate watch, but I never hate any of your episodes. <laughs> it just made me mad, because he never once like told any of the listeners to hey join your local democratic party and get involved and then maybe you can work your way up which is not difficult to work your way up inside of the democratic party on the state level at least well tell us a little bit about your experiences have you have you had experiences like zogby where you've tried well, to not not on the national level uh -huh. but Locally. like in the state level uh -huh. absolutely it took me less than two years to go from the county committee, like just being like a member of my county party up mm -hmm. to the executive committee of my state party. Like it took less than two years to do that as a Jill Stein supporting like former green mm. who came into the Democratic Party who ran for chair. Like, sure, I got a lot of like s people smearing me like, oh, he's a 
a Green Party infiltrator, stuff like that when I was running for chair. But when people mm. knew me, I was able to get them to say, hey, yeah, he's not some Russian infiltrator, all that crap. Like, he's just a regular person. And they got me all the way up to the executive committee. And, mm -hmm. like, I understand where he's coming from, where... I know it's like, oh, he's been on there for 30 years. I heard a lot of people saying, oh, he's been on there for 30 years. Like, what has he done? He really hasn't done anything. But we don't know the stuff that he's blocked from happening. Because just my short two years on in, like, my state party, they proposed, well, the chair, like the party chair at the time, proposed amending the party platform or the party rules where they wouldn't have to notify the media when they were having their uh uh quarterly meetings and because i was the i was there and i was like hey i don't think that's right he tabled it and there wasn't a vote on it and i was on that was like hey that that kind of seems messed up because it was just a like 10 rules changes and they were going to do a complete lump vote for all of them and i was the only one that actually said something about that one like hey i, I don't think that's right i really think that people should know whenever the Democratic Party of Arkansas is having meetings. And because, like, I don't want to be like, oh, because of me, but it, really because of me, it stopped that amendment from being through, which then, like, at least when I was on the committee, they notified the media every time we had a meeting. So, like, yeah. I, we don't know what he helped at least stop from happening because the DNC is so... Yeah. So I, I'm I'm sensitive. Like I am not exactly where some folks are, which is to say, there's no point in participating in any party politics whatsoever. Um, for some of the reasons that you've articulated, and I certainly wouldn't say that there's been no point to Jim Zogby. Because look, but for Jim Zogby telling us the story of how he tried to get them to ban dark money in Democratic primaries, we wouldn't even have that evidence of how corrupt the Democratic Party is right and that he's exactly. for a lot of different reasons to what he has done i think the frustration around that interview and some other things that have happened and other guests that have been on is when there's simultaneously a, an account of how difficult it is to play the inside game at the same time as there is a folks who want to invest in third parties as well and again it's the zero sum stuff it's like if you really mean mean it, then let's let many flowers bloom, let many flowers bloom. But, you know, sometimes, and you've heard this on these episodes, if I raise third parties, not at all critiquing folks who have chosen a different route, but raise third parties is something that people can be additionally spending their time doing, or people who are fed up with the inside game alternatively spending their time doing, there are folks that will go out of their way to poo-poo that effort as though it takes away from what they're doing. Or, or he didn't poo-poo it, but like there was an episode we did with the labor historian recently, who I think was very compelling when he was talking about how important third parties were during the New Deal era to pressure, you know, Edgar to actually do the good stuff. And so when I then tried to tie that to the big, to the current day and said, okay, well, what about third parties today? Do you think that there has been insufficient attention to them, given how crucial they were in the battle for the New Deal? You know, there was a bit more hesitation. You're like, oh, well, I'm not sure that that's really what needs to be done now. It's like, okay, but why? So I, I completely agree with you that, you know, I'm not willing to sit here and say people shouldn't join their local parties. People shouldn't run for office. Like, that's not me. 
Although I completely respect folks who are like, if that's all you're telling people to do, you are in effect cheap hurting people without talking that without helping to build third party alternatives or helping or, or, or um, articulating the need for them for the third party alternatives. And that's a difficult line there. And one that I sometimes find myself uh, in different place than like some of the RBN folks, but I really appreciate where they're coming from because, you know, it does seem to, to that, but for the third parties, we're not going to go anywhere. And the inside outside game, if that's what you believe in, requires the outside game. But so many people who say they want to do inside outside only focus on the inside. And, and, oh, and no. even, more, even more than that, they, they actively attack the outside. And that's always oh, no. you. I completely, I completely agree with you because it's only Jill Stein and her 2012 campaign that Bernie even ran in 2016. He ran on Medicare for All, which Jill Stein ran on in 2012, yeah. and she yeah. ran on in 2012 the Green New Deal. She laid the foundation for literally the entire progressive platform. I'm totally not denying that at all, and I do believe that there needs to be an inside and outside strategy. But my, what I'm trying to get at is even if you are a green, like I am a green, registered green, but I still have worked within the Democratic Party. Uh-huh. Like the Democratic Party is open to everyone. That does, does that mean that I voted for Joe Biden? Hell no. Does that mean uh-huh. I voted for Hillary Clinton? Hell no. I'm not going to vote for corporate Democrats or conservative Democrats, and I don't have to. But that doesn't mean that I can't still work within the Democratic Party and at least make at least uh, acquaintances and allies all over the state, at least mm-hmm. to be like, okay, we're uh, like with the uh, uh, mutual aid, go to your local democratic parties. I guarantee there are people there at least willing to donate because mm-hmm. there are people at the democratic parties that are always willing to give money to basically anything. Like I know I've spoken to Democrats all over my state and I live in Arkansas and we're poor here, but there's mm-hmm. still people who will donate money to good causes, especially mutual aid funds. And I think if you're unwilling to at least attend a county Democratic Party meeting or something like that, you're kind of like, I don't know, hindering hindering yourself from uh, reaching out to uh, potential supporters and volunteers. Because like- Yeah, this is hmm? is where Bernie kind of failed as well. To the extent that anyone is is invested in a presidential candidate or a Senate candidate, whether running on a Democratic Party ticket or as a third party, you you encounter the reality of local politics. And if you're the kind of person, God bless Bernie, who doesn't want to call people on their birthdays and all that, that comes back to bite you in the ass. It's just true. There were so many times when we got screwed by bad coverage in the media or somebody who didn't want to make an endorsement simply because they didn't feel like they had had their hands shook and gotten a phone call from Bernie. And that's like dumb, obviously. And I wish the mm-hmm. world didn't work that way. And I wish people had had more backbone. But even Andrew Yang, do you remember when he was on the podcast? And I was like, well, why didn't you endorse Bernie? And he said something on the lines of, well, Bernie never called. Biden called, yeah. didn't. Like, obviously that's dumb as hell. And like you, everyone was in their right to judge Andrew Yang for not making a principal stand because Bernie also didn't call Marianne Williamson and she always points out that despite not really getting a lot of appreciation from Bernie, she still endorsed him. So Yang could have done the same. But knowing that's how the world works 
and choosing not to make those relationships, you're going to keep doing things like losing South Carolina. You're going to keep doing things like missing on a basic easy endorsement. You're going to keep getting, you know, um, what's his name? He's kind of disappeared from the public eye. Um, Tanisi Coates apparently was mad. He wrote the case of reparations and threw Bernie under the bus under the bus at the end in part because Bernie never called him. He, he never responded to a request for an interview. You know, like dumb shit like that happens. And again, I disagree with Bernie's approach, uh, position on reparations, by the way. I don't mean that to say that it's not a legitimate critique. But the way that Time Music Coach wrote it pretended as though Bernie, Hillary, and Obama didn't have the exact same perspective on reparations. And he seemed to hold more accountable than the other ones. That's all that my critique was there. Sorry, I just said a lot of words, Tucker. Anything else for you? <laughs> I don't know. It's completely fine. I was just uh, wanting to say a few more things. Like when you brought up Bernie, like I was going to bring up like in 2016, he had like over 13 million voters. And like if just a fraction of them would have like, let's just say 5% would have joined their local Democratic parties, the entire party would have been controlled by Bernie supporters because yeah. let's just average 100 uh, people per county party there's not 100 people per county party believe me that's only like 30 or 300,000 people but 5% of bernie's supporters is 700,000 so mm. like just a fraction of bernie's supporters if he would have just been like join your local party if any like progressive would advocate for that and like mm -hmm. use their power nationally to get progressives to join to help take over the party, we could actually take over the party. But mm -hmm. like, if we just focus on voting for progressive candidates, literally nothing's gonna change because conservatives will still control the party. They still control the party structure. And like, honestly, why Bernie lost is because progressives are not engaged in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Because if you look back in the past, pr more progressive candidates won in the past through the Democratic Party, because we predominantly had caucuses and progressives usually win caucuses because progressives are mostly populist and that gets people more likely to go caucus for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, if you look at it in the past, like Obama won because of the caucuses and then the Democratic Party got rid of a lot of the caucuses mm -hmm. and then Hillary Clinton won over Bernie Sanders and then the Democratic Party again pretty much just got rid of all of the caucuses in 2020 and Bernie Sanders just got them all sure because of COVID, but also because he didn't fight back, but also because of the Democrat party has gotten rid of caucuses, which favor progressives. And I know some people may be against that because it's not quote unquote democratic and like it's hard to get engaged in, but like caucuses can be made more and are more uh, accessible to people primaries i just feel more conservative and old people vote in uh primaries and caucuses are more leaning towards the young people which i prefer yeah i think you're making some good points uh tucker i think you're making some points, and i appreciate you uh calling in and it's it's a very i don't know like like i said i i do think that sometimes like I really respect and want to give voice to the um, the frustration with me uh, with electoral politics in the sense that it can be sheep herding, but also there is obviously strategic value to actually having 
knowledge of and influence over the inside aspect of it too, especially on the local level. And Savvy has said this about how much has been able to be achieved in Massachusetts on the local level. She's, you know, it's her to say that all the things we're fighting for on the national basis, they've already gotten in Massachusetts. And so people need to turn their eye to the local level as well. And so I appreciate you telling I completely agree with that, but I do want to say one last thing. You really, really need to get on TikTok. I know you don't like it in particular, but I just, I think you would do great on it. And I think you are missing out on so many culturally significant things like the Miami Choir Boys and like Cupcake. I love the idea of being on TikTok. I just don't have the bandwidth. I don't even post to the bad faith shit anymore on on Instagram because I just am overwhelmed. Who cares about Instagram? If I, if I am no longer doing rising, I think you'll see a lot more. Um, I, I'll pick up a lot of this, the slack that's been here. I mean, I got to say, like, I used to put do more planning into episodes and reach out farther in advance to get bigger guests. I was reflecting on how I, we used to have, like, Killer Mike and, like, Noam Chomsky and, like, uh, Wyatt Snack and, like, like random big name people on and part of why we don't right now is because I just don't have the bandwidth to plan in advance for episodes the way I used to. So, you know, there's some upsides that will happen if I'm no longer uh, with rising, but we'll see how that all shakes out. Thank you so much for calling in Tucker. No problem. Have a great night. You too. Um, And because uh, of the generosity of Jonathan, I'm going to hop around a little bit, but I'll come back to the front and get you Jonathan in a second. Let's hear from Shersha who I don't think we've heard from in a while. Hi, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing quite well, thank you. What's on your mind? So I had a couple of comments. Um, I was, I did not hear the beginning of this call-in, so it could be that some things, but I do get really concerned about like the single strategy situation. Um, So I've mentioned that I'm in North Carolina and we have we have a libertarian, a Republican, a Democrat, and a Green Party person, mm-hmm. uh, Matthew Ho, all mm-hmm. on the ballot. And there's this huge question around, like, are you willing to tolerate the possibility of Bud winning and what that could mean? And I, I do agree that, like, this is a strategy Democrats have to stop doing at some point. This is, like, you know, no. But... I almost am feeling like you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. You have to work for electoral reform on the outside and you have to think about what your vote is going to be this time. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say with the RBN, I was really disappointed to hear them say things like, well, if these progressives were on the ballot, I just wouldn't vote for any of them. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, if it comes down to like a conservative blue dog Democrat versus a progressive Democrat, which one would you rather have? Because ultimately one of those people is going to be the person, right? So mm-hmm. how do you, I, I agree with you. And I wish, in a way, I wish you had pushed them like a little bit further on why is that like better necessarily? Yeah, and it's a difficult situation because I can't change anybody's perception that with with Marianne in particular, I have been open about my friendship with her, which I think is the only honest thing to do. So anything that I say about, you know, since she's been so centered in this, and again, I kept trying to bring up some other people 
you know, there's other potential progressives. Is Bernie going to run again? You know, how would you feel if it were Andrew Yang? How would you feel if it were Matthew Hill? I don't really care who it is. Right. But because Marianne, like, I kept trying to keep tip conversation away from Marianne and they wouldn't even <laughs> want to talk about Marianne. Um, yeah. uh, you know, anything that I say is perceived as me, like, making excuses for her. But I think that what you're saying is true, that even if I completely credit every criticism of her, and again, no one has had more of these conversations with her than me with all yeah. these criticisms. Yeah. Um, I, do you still, would you still rather have Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris be president than her or any right. number of other people or Elizabeth Warren, let's say, who I have no affection for. Everybody knows that too. So right. is it, do we really, as much as I can't stand how Elizabeth Warren handled herself in 2020, <laughs> I'm really going to sit here and say we're better off with Biden bullshitting about $10,000 in student debt cancellation than Elizabeth Warren bullshitting about $50,000. Right. You know, there's a difference there. It's not a world-changing socialism bringing difference. Right. Right. And I, I also feel like um, listening to the earlier caller who was saying, like, you know, the left has failed and stuff. I, it reminded me a lot of a video. I don't know if you know who Jonathan Pye is, but he's like a, a satirical character and he did this one video that was basically like how socialism is actually a centrist in hs you like socialism mm. and i thought the reaction this was on twitter so i have no idea like how it went on the other platforms and, and we can um call, or not twitter is like a, a different demographic of people but the response was like, well, that's not really socialism. Socialism is actually the workers owning the means of production. Mm -hmm. And to me, as someone who works in the space of political education in terms of like electoral reform and stuff like that, I don't understand how that's helping this project. Like, I don't understand. He's trying to make, he's trying to reach across to people who don't already agree. And to do that, you can't be overly theoretical and didactic about it in my opinion because it it doesn't it doesn't motivate people mm -hmm. and I feel like there's some of that with the organizing too I think organizing is really important my partner does tons of organizing very successfully but like we've both said that that's not the only thing that's going to like attract new people to this movement mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I agree with the previous caller. It, it is a movement. It has to be inside and it has to be outside. And I, ju I just, I'm waiting for someone to convince me why uh, Ted Budd, who is such an extremist, that that is a risk worth taking. Well, so there's, there's a couple of things there. I mean, I think that there is an argument and everyone doesn't have to agree with it, but there is an argument that says, the, the 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 spoiler argument has been used against the the left since forever. The vote like the two party system survives because at the end of the day, liberals will never demand more. They will always take the lesser of two evils because of the risk of whatever right winger, whatever increasingly fascist party is on the other side of the thing, right? And so Matthew Hill was never going to get his flowers. And we're also never going to get, as long as the Democratic Party is successfully able to weaponize lesser to evilism, they are never, ever, ever going to open the door to ranked choice voting. 
And maybe they never will regardless, but there's an argument that says, well, if we are willing to just shoot the hostage, eventually the Democrats are going to have to realize they either have to run better candidates or be open to ranked choice voting. You know, I, I can see that argument being made. Now, that's not an argument against not running, you know, not voting or not caring about electoralism or not running, not being involved in local politics, pre the uh, read the previous caller and all of that. But it is a little bit different than saying, you know, elections matter because there's going to be bad outcomes, so we have to vote for the Democrat. And I think that, you know, that's a tricky line there. Yeah, it it is. And I, I don't disagree that, like, at some point you have to shoot the hostage because they have to feel it's an existential threat if they don't make these changes that they're they're not going to do it. I just don't know that, like, this would do it, though. Like, now, at least in North Carolina, I don't feel like, again, because also, and this isn't a criticism of your um, guests, but, like, many of them are in places where I don't know that it would be a huge difference if they mm. chose to abstain. You know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, some of them are and some of them are. I think Savvy's definitely Massachusetts. Where did Nick say? Uh, where is Nick? Because uh, they were in places like California and they were in places like... DJ's in California for sure. And so for me, it's like, I kind of understand that there because there's, not that there's less at risk, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. it's it's going to have much less effect. And I think as well, because the person this time is so frightening um i i just i don't know i anyway i i am open to any thoughts and people trying to convince my mind uh either way because i have been going around and around in circles with myself about this now for a number of weeks no i get it and i and i don't think that it's easy like i've I've had this conversation i just had it last weekend in fact with people um and they were like, okay, fine, you voted for Jill Stein, but you were in New York. You would have behaved differently if you lived elsewhere, right? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I've never, I wasn't really confronted with that harder choice, but it is not, it is not, I'm not confident. I would, I frankly, I would almost like to say, I, I frankly would like to think that I was principled enough, not just principled, I think that actually strategic enough to say, even if I lived in Philadelphia or uh, Madison or something that I also would have made the same decision. Cause I think it should be, it shouldn't just be the symbolic thing that I did. Cause I live in a blue state. Um, right. With that, and like, I make, you know, political education arguments all the time around what mandate means to people here, because that's not something that gets talked about a lot. So I, I sympathize when CJ was saying like, well, you give them a mandate and I agree, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, pretty significant daylight on some on some issues not on all issues but on some issues between these two people yeah look i hear that let's 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 um let's continue this this question going thanks for calling in sersha um jonathan keep the faith and jonathan what do you make of this and i'm going to head back to the end of the line again and mix it up with I originally was going to call in to talk about the episode because it was a great episode. Uh, like, I like Paulo. He had, he's a sharp guy, and he made some pretty astute observations. But mm-hmm. you kind of 
covered the line share of what I was going to say anyway. Like you're a couple of steps ahead of me there. So uh, I figured I would engage with uh, with uh, some of the things that the previous callers were were saying. You know, we were talking about strategy. I was going to ask you if you had seen the um, the labor the labor files, like the the Al Jazeera documentary on what was done to Jeremy Corbyn. No, is that new? Uh, relatively, you know, it's it's a little over a week old at this point. Uh, but you know, there's even a, a section in there about how they uh, they weaponized uh, anti-Semitism to push out all of the. Uh, pro-Palestinian Jews or even people that entertained that Palestinians have rights. Uh, so that's also timely and relevant given what happened to Katie. But yeah. the thing is, like, this... That could be a first yeah. <laughs> That, like, the, the thing is, like, this is the playbook. And, it, like, technically the Democrats did use a similar playbook. They were less heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. But also Jeremy Corbyn got a lot farther than Bernie did. And this is the kind of thing that I think people really need to be aware of. You talk about strategy and, um, and, and organizing. Like, these people are ready for war, and they're prepared to fight back hard. Uh-huh. And, you know, they have control of, uh, of basically most of the levers of power and of communications in a lot of, in a lot of cases. So, you know, these people had strong connections in the media. Uh, They controlled all the arms of the party. They controlled judges. They controlled all kinds of stuff. And they were able to uh, fabricate a lot of smears out of whole cloth. Uh, It was a very, very organized, calculated, like take everything you, you knew and everything you suspected about what was done to Jeremy Corbyn and multiply it by a dozen. And to a lesser degree, we saw the Democrats use similar playbooks against people like Alex Morse and Shai Buttar. Um, but like I said, they never they didn't get quite as far. But I mean, the thing is, that is the playbook. And people need to be aware when they're talking about, oh, let's just organize at the local level or, oh, uh, you know, organize one workplace at a time and that's enough and we'll just build power. Like, the other side does not stand still, and they do not stand by and take it. You can already see the way Howard Schultz is responding to these uh, Starbucks workers mm-hmm. uh, with his heavy-handed, like, the law doesn't matter if nobody's mm-hmm. going to enforce it. Uh, you know, these and these people, you know, are prepared to go as far as it takes and be as heavy-handed as necessary. And you have to have, like, if you're going to come for the team, you best not miss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of thing has to be considered when you're talking about strategy. And I think for too long we've been used to thinking, well, if we can just get enough people on our side, that'll be good enough. Or if we can just convince enough people to vote the right way, it's good enough. Or if we can just convince... You know, uh, you know, people to start organizing their workplace and laborers to start using their, le- you know, to start using their leverage. These things are all necessary, but not sufficient. And you need to like there has to be some sort of, of real strategy and coordination involved in how you're going to do it if you're you're not going to get basically massacred. And, you know, because if these things if these guys think there's a tipping point coming and you're about to get what you after. Like, they will come at you hard. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You know, the the reason the reason we had Zogby on, and I know it, it's conversation turned into something else, but 
was that he was actually demonstrating the futility, whether or not he liked it, of the insider game when he talks about how it's not just they wouldn't vote to get dark money out of politics, it's that we live in a world where they've become so incredibly efficient using the dark money, and in particular, yes, this smear of anti-Semitism to derail a lot of our progressives. I mean, how many times do we have to see it happen? Not just in England, but here. And what's the strategy going to be to respond to it? Especially if apparently it may be the case that we can't even go on the few news outlets where, where leftists have been granted some space to bring those issues up. And I don't know if you saw this article by um, uh, Marco Brankovic, Brankovic and Jack. Oh, Branko Markovic, yeah. Branko Markovic, sorry. You know, like, I. The, the, he goes, gets into some of the new ownership of the Hill, and I don't know, again. I am not going on tomorrow because we are at a detente, and I'm hoping that there's some resolution. Um, I'm going to meet you, Jonathan, just because of that background noise. And I'm uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Um, But the, um, well, I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm not going on tomorrow because I haven't gotten the kinds of response that I need to feel like it's okay for me to go on. Um, but what a loss and what it would mean if, if, um, Franco's assessment of why this has happened in terms of the new ownership of the Hill and what their allegiances sounds like one of those trigger words that, but you know, what their, what their background is, what their political identity is, is really what's been driving these editorial decisions then that, I mean, it speaks to a much, much, much bigger problem than me or Katie or any of us here. So um, thank you as always, Jonathan. Sorry, I didn't mean to kick you out of the thing. I was just trying to put you on force mute. Oh, there I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, did, I think uh, Branko's uh, assessment is accurate. And actually one of the things that was in the Labor Files documentary was uh, the fact that you know, part of the playbook is actually using uh, a lot of the the kind of uh, NGO apparatus that kind of caters to uh, the various political parties in Washington and elsewhere, um, you know, to uh, start doing these kinds of things, including, you know, the, uh, the pro-Israel NGOs and activist groups over there, which very much participated in a lot of these, these sorts of, of uh, smear campaigns. And at a certain point, uh, you know, even uh, the Israeli embassy was involved. In uh-huh. So, yeah, this, this sort of thing absolutely um, does happen. I was going to say something else, and I had a point that was, like, profound, but I totally forgot it, <laughs> which well, it happens well, sometimes. Right, right but, you know, so at least the chat gets the benefit of it, Jonathan. But yeah, I didn't want to take up too much time because I kept you way too long last time. Like you were on that that call in for four hours, and I kept you like for a, almost a half an hour. No, it's my fault. So I feel really bad about it's that. It's my fault, but we are not going over two hours today. So I'm going to try to get through a couple more people who I see that, that I think are new faces in the line. But thank you so much for calling in, Jonathan. I always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, let's try Aaron because I've never seen this avatar before, and I think I would remember this little pointy headed guy. What's what's on your mind, Aaron? Hey, can you I hear can. me? 
That was my first time doing this. I'm hey, a little bit nervous so. and starstruck. <laughs> <with. laughs> All right, thanks. Well, listen, I'm calling because uh, I've been kind of a fan of yours for a little bit of a while now. First time calling, though. I recently turned 50, though. Oh, congrats. I wish I had my soundboard. Uh-oh. There are all these reasons I want, I want to have applause, but I didn't hook up today. <laughs> That's funny. Well, thanks. The novelty is worn off, but every day I find some new thing that used to bother me that I no longer about. <laughs> and I thought, I thought when I hit 40 that I, that I ended up with a big list of things I just didn't give a shit about anymore, but it was nothing compared with 50. Oh, yeah? Want to give us a taste? Uh, uh- <laughs> well, what, what don't you give a shit about anymore? Oh, I don't have one off the top of my head. I'll tell you this. So I've been thinking about getting t-shirts made that say Gen X, getting screwed by boomers since before you were even born. <laughs> I definitely know there's a market for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's enough of us for it. But um, listen, I, I just want to though because uh, I'm bringing my age into this because the left is in such good shape now compared to what it was in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And... You know, at the risk of sounding like the old timer here, I love the fact that I can go on YouTube and there's you and Katie and uh, Crystal and just so many people out there. Whereas back in the day, if you were lucky enough to live in a place like San Francisco, as I did, you know, you could get like Tom Hartman or someone mm-hmm. like that and his brunch with Bernie or whatever. And, you know, there were some of these guys are on. Mike Malloy was a breath of fresh air when the, you know, when the Iraq war was heating up and there's really no one else around who was going against it. So, when when I hear guys like the RBN guys, whom I spent a lot of time listening with to last week, saying, oh, I'm not going to vote for this guy or I'm not going to vote for that guy, I, I understand where they're coming from and I don't mean to shit on them, but I feel like it is such a luxury to even be able to say that because the idea of having someone like Bernie Sanders run for president was just unthinkably optimistic in the 90s or whatever. And things have it's slow, but things have gotten a lot better in a lot of ways. And I just don't think that we as the left should uh, lose sight of that. Because it's easy to in the moment, God. Yeah, knows. it's hard, right? Because I understand why people. There, this isn't. This obviously isn't what you were doing, but there's a version of an argument that I have with Robbie that I have with Charlie Kirk, which goes, "Things are better now than they used to be. So why are you complaining, right? Like there's a there's a there's a kind of slippage that can happen where, it's the it's the it's the Stephen Pinker argument of we've had progress, fewer people are dying from cholera or whatever, global. Right prospects are up so why are you even bitching and moaning about homelessness or like you know pandemics or anything like that and that's not what you're doing but i do understand why there's a sensitivity have against pointing out how much better things are than they've been because so often it's weaponized to like shut down any criticism of how bad things are in the present and it's a a difficult line to to, to toe yeah yeah all right, why don't we bogart the whole evening? I just sort of wanted to say hello. And well, it, hello so. and welcome. Thank you so much for calling. And I hope to see you in this. What is this avatar? What am I looking at? What is this? <laughs> what am I looking well, at? It, since you asked, I do use it. This for my YouTube channel, which is the Metal Theologian channel. I just talk about records. Cool. But um, it's actually, it's a robot from the original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, so now I'm, t- I'm telling on myself it's not having... My brother's been trying to get me to watch Battlestar for like 20, 20 years. Um, well, the remake is way better. Like that reboot that they did with uh, Edward James Olmos is his yeah. name in that. Uh, the old one, if you like crappy old sci-fi and tin suits, it's awesome. Okay, don't get me wrong, especially the pilot. But um, but as a program overall, the later one is much better. It's just better thought out. They really sort of dealt with the idea of like, 
you know, this alien species wiping out the entire human race in a way that just sort of glossed over in the earlier huh. one. And, you know, it's it's dark and just a lot more sort of brooding and thoughtful. It's more interesting. Okay, I'm open to it. Thank you for that, Aaron. I'm glad that we, we got to the bottom of that Avatar you gate. Bet. It's a Stargate, Avatar gate. <laughs> and I hope to see you in the chat, uh, in the call queue again sometime. Keep the faith. Right, I'll take my call. <laughs> All right, Sierra. Um, I don't think I've seen you around very much. What's on your mind tonight? You still with us, Sierra? Did I catch you off guard or are we having a little technical snafu? Okay, can yes, you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? Um, so I was just uh I was just thinking about like what do you think about like um like the relationship between like narcissism and the economic elite and like the refusal to like the guy you were talking to earlier mm -hmm. who worked for uh UPS mm -hmm. um just like the fact that you are able to like extend that empathy to him is something that I think like UPS as a company is not, you know, like you thought to empathize with him, but the company itself just doesn't. Mm. So like, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of nervous because I haven't really called before. No, you're good. You're like, I'm, I'm making them your every word, but I'm, I'm really interested in your angle here. Yeah, I just, I don't know, it, it, it kind of feels like it's almost like a narcissism from the company's perspective where they just, they, and like narcissism, from what I've like learned about it, it's like a, a refusal to extend empathy to other people. Mm. And um, it stems from like, like this imperialistic social darwinist like idea that people are not valuable just for being human but they have to like prove their worth so i was just wondering if you have like any perspective or insight on like that psychological phenomenon at all well i mean i do think that there is just such a strong material incentive for the company not to acknowledge the humanity of their workforce the reality that it's not just a workforce but they're human beings with needs and families um that aren't like little cogs that can perfectly respond the way an employer would like an employer whose only interests are profit right so even without getting into right. any psychological motives there are obvious reasons why it behooves ups or any other company to downplay the humanity of their workforce because with public empathy comes power for the worker and sympathy for them if they go on strike and all those kinds of things. Now, I think psychology does play an important role here because the, the corporations, they manipulate, they, they understand that they have to win the psychological warfare with the public if they're going to continue to suppress the workers. And they can't look, there's a, there is a tipping point that exists even in anti-union America where they can no longer stay profitable if too many people hate them, either because workers go on strike and there's a lot of public support for it and they can hold out, 
or because there's uh, consumer boycotts or what have you. Uh, so they do deploy mechanisms to downplay sympathy for workers and up and up and up play sympathy for the company. We saw that in the in the in a lot of the media narratives around um, the uh, real worker strike, um, all of the shit talking about baristas that happens in this country, people pretending like retail right. workers aren't the like largest labor force, uh, you know, and that deserves obviously compassion. And they, they, they act like service workers, retail workers are like losers who didn't make it in society or teenage kids when they average a fast food worker is like a 35 year old woman with at least one child or some stat like that. Right. So that, that is the ongoing war game. That is the ongoing psychological tug of war. Right. Yeah. And it, it almost seems like it's like impenetrable. Like it's a. Like, how can you, like, you were able to, when he was about to, like, just move on from that, he was like, oh, yeah, I had to go to the emergency room. But anyway, and you were like, no, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, like, what happened? Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't get, um, you can't get blood out of an orange. Is that what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, (laughs) or an orange. You can't get... (laughs) Yeah, like, uh, you can't get from from people who don't see your inherent value as a human mm-hmm. being, you can't, it doesn't seem like you can force them to have that empathy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know, I just like see the parallels between that and like, narcissistic personality disorder, where, uh, like, People who are in like a narcissistic relationship, they're, I, I don't know if this has like very much relation, but I feel like it's a real, I feel like it's a real thing mm-hmm. um, that the solution that a lot of people have to being in a relationship with someone who's like trying to dominate them is to go completely no contact with mm-hmm. them. And so, I don't know. That's. That's pretty much all I had to say. Yeah, look, thanks, Sierra. I, I wish I could speak more um, to the psychology of it. And while I like to think of myself as an armchair psychologist and the child of a psychologist, I do not have that particular credential. Um, I, there have been these other moments. Who was it that often talks about psychology? Was it Grace? You used to, maybe, maybe it wasn't Grace. But um, we had a conversation like months ago uh, about guilt versus shame and the psychology around some of some of the stuff i i do think that the thing that best explains the behavior of the corporations is their material drive but i think it's important mm-hmm. to i think you're completely right to pick up on how they have to deal with the psychology of the of the general public and they are very aware mm-hmm. of the benefits of dehumanizing the workforce so that people don't feel empathy with uh, folks like the earlier caller from um, UPS so that they don't feel like they deserve more so that people feel put, pr- privilege their own self-interest as consumers over their shared interests with workers it, and things like that. And historically, of course, you oh. know, race has been a big part of that and dividing up working class movements by le- having people believe that if there's a higher minimum wage or if government workers get more benefit than it's benefiting 
you know, an undeserving group over the more deserving group in quotation marks and, and right. pitting people against each other using all of that kind of stuff. And the person who earlier brought up the, um, uh, the Freud's uh, cousin or whatever it is, brother, the propaganda guy. I think that oh, yeah, Edward Bernays. Yes. I, I think that that's a hundred percent, like a hundred percent relevant to bring up here. And I, and I think that it, and I think it is true. Like when you hear, when you heard um, the fellow from UPS, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. It was something short. I can see his avatar. It was black with like a yellow, black and yellow logo. Sam Scott. Anyway, when, uh, when he, you know, was going to breeze over his hospitalization, I, I do think there's a way that we're all kind of trained to not talk about that stuff. And that right. like, we're, we're kind of told the American work story is like, we have to be resilient and not indulge in our problems. But that's part of the game that they're playing with us, right? They want us not to talk about that stuff because it makes them look like shit and it, it humanizes us. Like it right. makes the employers look just truly horrible. Um, and I think that was part of what was so powerful about Bernie and some of these town halls in 2016 was that that was a moment like before that, you know, there's so much taboo about talking about not being able to afford healthcare. There's so much shame around, right. oh my God, someone I love more than anything is sick and I don't even have the money to keep them from dying. Like there's a lot of shame involved in not being able to afford basic goods. No one wants to say that they're poor in this country. Everybody says they're middle class no matter what they earn, you know? And Bernie yeah. having these town halls where he asked people like, who has ever been in the situation? And everyone can slowly raise their hands and look around and realize they're not alone was an enormously empowering moment. So yeah, I do think I do yeah. I do always kind of want to consciously make space for folks to say the true thing about what their experiences have been because it is so difficult. It, like it is so easy rather to kind of like look at facts and figures and kind of talk abstractly about unionization and, and these theoretical terms. But what I think should be motivating us and help us keep our eye on the ball without just doing all of this constant infighting is realizing that there's a human being with a little newborn that we can hear crying in the background who was hospitalized and had his life at risk this yeah. summer because some corporation wanted to make an extra buck off of him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when it comes when it comes to healthcare and us, we're not we don't have a single payer healthcare system or a government healthcare system. It's like it's it's like saying you're not valuable as a human being just for being human. Like you have to prove your worth. Almost. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. Thank Brianna. you for calling in. I really, I really enjoyed talking to you, Sierra. I hope to see you in the chat again. Okay. Thank you. Now I am looking at Jesse's face and I swear I've never seen him here before, but also, you know, I like to get a little gender parody going on and I see these three female presenting names in the back here, this row of Shelly and Michelle. I'm very torn. I'm very torn here. Um, because I do want to stop. Okay, let's do a little. Let's do a little rapid fire, Jesse. Just quickly, can you get some like a question or comment out on the table in just a couple minutes? Hey, Bree. Um, first time calling, and uh, really exciting to talk to you. Oh, I'm so glad. See, I I thought I think I'm pretty.
pretty good at identifying a first-time caller. And I'm not trying to downplay Norwood Chris or other Chris or any of these people in the front or Amanda even, who I know calls frequently. But I, I love to see a first-time caller. So what's on your mind, Jesse? Uh, you know, lots on, is on my mind. Um, I'm, I'm mostly, I just wanted to get in the queue and hope to uh, get to chat with you and everything and say thank you for doing what you do. And I mean, I think it's just really helpful to me and hopefully a lot of people in terms of, you know, making sense out of this crazy world. I've, I've kind of been on a journey of, you know, discovering I'm a leftist and lots, lots of different stuff in the last few years. And um, you are, what you're doing is, is super helpful to feel like I'm, you know, finding some kind of path through that. I'm, I'm glad. I, it's, 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 it's humbling, but I'm, I'm glad to do what I can. And I'm so grateful for everybody in this space who makes it possible. What, what's your journey, yeah. uh, what's your journey um, been like? Um, I don't know. I kind of grew up with hippie parents in the woods <laughs> and kind of thought I was alternative and, um, and then was, I guess, maybe more mainstream and got into Bernie in 2016. And then, you know, 2020 happened and, um, I got more involved with like homeless, um, homeless mutual aid and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's it's interesting because there's like these little bits and pieces of kind of more radical um ideology that were present in my upbringing that i'm now kind of rediscovering but at the same time i'm realizing that there was a lot of things that were kind of warped in my upbringing you know like kind of my white um privileged hippie parents who lived out in the woods with no running water but yet you know i had a a, a doctor and a judge as you know my two grandfathers so even though we like supposedly were really poor we actually you know, had a lot of privilege. You were, and, you were Gilmore um, girls in it a little bit. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, and uh, I guess the the one the one thought, the one kind of broad comment I was going to make, I, I've been thinking, I just watched the, uh, um, or listened to your, your episode with the RBN crew. Is is Nick, um, did he originally go by Nick as a Fred Hampton leftist on mm -hmm. Twitter? Is that who I'm mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was seeing his tweets a while back, but um, I love those guys, and I love when you are, um, you know, having discussions with them because I feel like the, be between the two, the you know, you, your two ideologies or whatever, you you guys work really well uh, to kind of temper each other's, uh, um, you know, kind of where you're coming from and, and what you're mm -hmm. talking about. But um, I I liked. I don't know. I'm, I'm always thinking, I like, I like, I think Nick maybe, or one of the guys mentioned kind of, um, you know, they, they kind of talked about strategy, I think, like, what are we going to, what are we going to do, you know? And I, I just, I don't know. I, I like, I like that kind of stuff. I don't know if you, you know, I hear you talking around that a lot, but I, I wonder if you think of having more, um, more guests on who, who are, doing things along those lines, yeah. you know, talking, talking more about real world I, stuff. I, to I totally agree. And that's part of why it's, it's not the organizing itself that I object to. It's the talking about it in a way that doesn't actually give people strategic direction. And in fact, can derail strategic direction. Right. So I really enjoy talking to It's, it's the organizing forever or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I share organizing without actually doing something. Right. And I, I like the RBN crew for the same reason you do. Um, it does. It's not that you know we're all, we're going to come up with strategic options, all of us that aren't necessarily the ones that bear out. 
but I'm so appreciative to have right. folks that are willing to articulate a vision that can be debated and vetted in the public sphere. Because I do think there are parts of the left where people are a little apprehensive about seeming like they're wrong or saying something stupid or getting called out by people who allegedly know more, who've been around in the spaces for longer. And it doesn't sure. feel so productive, you know, like just you're allowed to get it wrong. But if no one is even advancing ideas, I mean, that's what the whole force of vote, what, like, that's the issue. Like people, it was, it was wonderful that Jimmy foregrounded that, right? Like, it's wonderful that Jimmy didn't invent the idea, but he pulled it up out and gave it a platform. And it would have, it was this great moment where we could have all just like discussed it and how to make it better. And some of us did. And, you know, whatever you want to say about Sirota, after a little back and forth, he really did a, contribute to the strategy because it was out there and we could yeah. discuss it. Unfortunately, there were these other parts of the left that categorically weren't interested in that, right? And, the, and wanted to poo-poo it. So I don't mind disagreement. I just want people to be yes-anding and offering positive alternatives. And I really, I, I do agree that that's what RBN does and why I appreciate their voices in the space so much. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I, I'll leave it there pretty much. Um, I will just say, um, if you're looking to, uh, you've kind of mentioned the idea of wanting to go around America and uh, be on the ground and stuff like that. If you're ever interested in doing that, I'm, uh, I'm uh, experimenting with uh, road tripping around the Western U.S. right now. And it, it'd sure be fun to get a bunch of people together and go, go out and do you, I don't know, take things on the road. And, do you watch the, um, do you listen to the Vanguards, the Vanguard boys? You know, I subscribe to them on Patreon and I haven't listened to one of their podcasts in a long time, but maybe I should, do they, is that kind of what they're well, doing Well, the right whole, now? I think the whole point of their name, I don't know why I always refer to them as the Vanguard boys, like the Venga boys, um, but the, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're grown, they're adults, uh, but the Vanguard uh, right, right. gentlemen, uh, they, <laughs> the, the van, the van of the Vanguard, I believe was supposed to be that they'd travel around and like do man on the street interviews and stuff. And my understanding was that they recently had gotten whatever they're funding together and had planned to do their first outing soonish, or I think they made an announcement in the last couple of weeks. So I would love, let's, there's a collab. I want to hear about it. I would love to do that, but again, it's a bit of a bandwidth issue. So we'll see what happens with rising. You know, I, 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 hear, I hear that's a little bit in flux and I having that, that um, episode, I just got a chance to watch the episode with Nick and um, coming on there. And that was, that was definitely worth you spending lots of time on rising. It's like, that was a gem. <laughs> it so. was great. Like that's, that's the thing. Like that's the catch 22. Like I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, if, if, if the hill is in fact, and this is what we're trying to figure out. If the Hill and it does in fact have an editorial line against making uh, op-ed criticisms of the Israeli government's behavior, it's difficult to see how I could participate in that, especially given how they handled the relationship with Katie. Right. At the same time, it is obviously true that it's a huge loss of a platform for the left. It's a loss that Katie can't come as she's been a regular um, there for years since the Crystal and Sagar days. It's a loss that I don't have the platform, you know, to, to co-host during the week. It's a loss that any pilots we were working on with the view of the left won't see the light of day. Like, it's a loss either either way. Um, 
and it sucks because I feel like the Hill kind of made this bed and now we're all trying to negotiate it for the best benefit of the left. But it's a really, it's a really shitty situation and I wish they hadn't put themselves in it. (laughs) Um, But we'll see what happens. And I won't say anything more because I'm not trying to sabotage any good resolution that might come out of this, but I I appreciate you uh, for calling in Jesse and I hope it's not the last we see of you. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to talking to you again. Okay, take care. Keep the faith. I have to wrap, but I do want to acknowledge that Chris, no more Chris, you've been waiting in the queue. Chris, other Chris, I see you all. I have been trying to privilege new voices, but calling again, and um, I won't skip over you next time. Sean, I've never seen this snow yak. I'm intrigued. I think you're a new caller. Cade, I've seen you before, but not in a while. Adrian, I see you all the time. I love to shout your name like in Rocky. Amanda, you know you're my girl. Like, I see you all here. I just want to acknowledge you, especially this yak. I'm really tempted to call on Sean because I'm really feeling like I've never seen this, this abominable yak, this yeti, this yeti bison situation is like really calling to me. Like, what is that? Like, what is that? Is that like, is that like when all falls, when the winter comes, when the, when the, when the king of the North faces final confrontation, he's riding this, he's confronted with the snow yak. Is that what this is? Do you know what I'm saying? Like who, what are the choices that are being made here? Is this from some kind of like manga or something that I'm not familiar with and everybody else knows what a snow, like a Yeti yak is? Is this just, I don't know, a beast that exists in Yukon territories and Sean is just like a proud Canadian repping his his um, state animal, his, his, what do you call it? What do they call it? <sighs> oh my God, my brain. See, this is why I'm not making any sense. And I can't even remember what the freaking things are called. <laughs> what are they called? <laughs> oh my God. Manitoba, Ontario, Vancouver. What are these things called? <laughs> okay, I want to hang up. I'm not hooked up to my soundboard, so there's no outro music. Um, so I'm just going to... Um, I wish I was a little bit taller. Nope, that's not the wrong song. You know what I'm saying. Uh, I wish I had a pilot in a podcast. I wish I had a son and a son. I wish I had a... You know how it goes. All right, keep the faith. Good night. Love you guys. <laughs>